Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and today I'm going to be having special guests, Harvey Tweets and Tom Whitehurst, who together form Celtic Reptile and Amphibians. We're going to be talking about rewilding the UK, particularly with herpifauna, and also about keeping some European species outdoors in the UK. So I can't wait for that. But first, we're going to look at the news, and I wanted to try and find some reptile-related news. So... Uh, some Mauritian reptiles have been rescued from a disastrous oil spill. These are some threatened species of skinks and various other things. Um, they've been rehomed with the Dural Wildlife Conservation Trust in Jersey. So on the 25th of July, the freighter MV Wascaro, that's definitely not how you say it, uh, ran aground near the Mauritian islands and within days, a thousand tonnes of fuel oil had gone into the ocean, causing devastation on all the flora and fauna on these delicate ecosystems of the islands. So on the 15th of September, to ensure the species' future survival, two crates of endangered reptiles arrived at their new home in Jersey. Lesser night geckos, Boger's skink and Borton skink, all found in the southeast islands of Mauritius, were identified as being in danger of extinction due to damage caused by the skill. The reptiles are the only surviving colony globally. Just a few hundred reptiles of each species survive on the country's southeast island. So they're incredibly rare and it would be a real shame to lose these. So hopefully by bringing them into captivity, we can breed them so they get up in their numbers and release them. And that flows very nicely onto my next guest because they breed lots of European species. Very much for the same reason. The more you have in captivity... The more ch- well, the less chance of them going extinct. So that brings me on to Celtic reptile amphibians, Tom Whitehurst and Harvey Tweets, as we chat about European reptiles. Well, welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank Thanks you very for much. having us. So we've got Harvey Tweets. Yeah, I remember your last name now. Yeah, and yeah. Tom Whit- Whitehurst. Whitehurst. Yeah. Only one letter out. Yeah. One letter out. Not bad. And together you make Celtic reptile and amphibian. Yes. Yeah. So. Quite a mouthful. It is, yeah. I mean, I struggled with the, the last letter there. This is also, I should say, this is a bit of a historic moment for the podcast because this is the first time I'm actually with the people I'm interviewing. I think out of all the ones, it's all been on Zoom, which is lovely, but I can see you. I can. I won't touch you, but I could. Um, so, <laughs> that sounds sinister, doesn't it? Especially when we're on our own in the house. Um, so <laughs> but um, it's it's nice to actually be be with you as, as we do this. So... We're at your we're at Harvey's house today, yeah. which is part of the base of operations where your garden is more or less like a zoo. Yeah, yeah. Of the amount of creatures that you yeah. got, but Tom, you've also got yeah, lots got, of stuff. Yeah, most of it, well, half of it. Yeah, all in your garden. Spread out between us. So, where did this love and interest start in in herptiles for you both? I should also point out for people who haven't heard the term herptiles, it's not herpes or anything to do with that. It's the collective term for reptiles and amphibians. So you'll probably hear herptiles a lot during this podcast but I'll, I'll start with you Tom so where, where did it all start for you well it, it began not not so long ago actually about two years ago well you're only 17 both of you aren't you yeah. so it can't be, can't be that long ago no. um, yeah so actually my interest came from Harvey so it kind of we say the infection spread to me because it's quite infectious so it's a poor use yeah. of uh, analogy at the moment <laughs> well, <laughs> talking about who <herbs. laughs> yeah. yeah just to be clear we're not on about herpes again <laughs> But yeah, so Harvey's had, well, you'll explain all this, but basically Harvey's had a lot of animals before and I've obviously gone around his house with mates, so I've been around his house before, 
and I've seen the uh, reptiles and the amphibians and I'd be like that's that's really cool I want to get some so I got some and then we're like okay we've got we've got a decent sized population here why don't we do something a bit more with it let's try and form some sort of well at the time it was just a Facebook page really but it sort of grew and expanded into what we are now which is a business yeah. And so as Tom says, you've been doing it a little bit yeah, longer. Yeah, so I mean, I've always been interested in nature ever since I was born. It's one of those things that I think for all of us who are interested in nature, we kind of can't really put a finger on where it started. You just popped out and love nature. Well, exactly, yeah. And But one of the things that, you know, that really intrigued me was um, European and British reptiles and amphibians because they're, they're a group of species which you may see a fleeting glimpse of on a moor or a heath or you may hear about them but you never you never always you know surrounded with with the the diversity of them and so i think it was a more of an absence than a presence of these animals that really got me hooked as it were um and that's that's how it started i mean I, the first thing to start keeping maybe four years ago uh i've kept exotic i've kept exotic reptiles and amphibians for 10 years but then uh, the more native and european stuff which is a lot more rare has been kept since about three years ago so it was it was that almost like chasing these animals and and it was this sense of mystery surrounding them that really got me interested into them um and it all and over the years it's been able to link in with conservation work and rewilding work which i'm sure will discuss yeah, well, I'm glad you've mentioned that because that's pretty much what I'm going to go on to now. So you're you're both huge advocates of, of reintroduction and rewilding and whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think we often get caught up with, with the megafauna and in previous podcasts talking to, to Pete Cooper and, and other people. Uh, but the little guys often get left behind. So I guess the question I put to you is why should we bring back some of these frogs, some of these lizards when perhaps other creatures like beavers are the prime example of these huge habitat engineers which have obvious benefits but what what's a more frog going to do or what's something else going to do well to start off with it, it, you need to not think of the animal on an individual basis you've got to think at large at a population scale you know collectively amphibians and reptiles in healthy ecosystems completely outweigh all of the, the mammalian and, and bird diversity within an ecosystem. So as a co collective species, their impacts rival the likes of megafauna. So for instance, in America on healthy marshland, the number of amphibians per 10 hectares is the equivalent to a black rhinoceros. So all these amphibians eating insects and moving through the landscape can create as big of an impact as say a grazing black rhinoceros and even more remarkable salamanders in temperate and tropical forests there's research showing that they actually help to regulate the climate because they control the level of decomposition within the forest floor because they eat things like wood lice and earthworms and slugs things that would otherwise decompose plant matter and create carbon dioxide and alter the planet so healthy amphibian populations are crucial they're actually a lifeline for all living things. Not to mention the fact that so many species, we were talking earlier about otters eating Iberian marsh frogs. You know, they're, 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 they're almost like coming across a large marsh frog, as you'd know, it would be like, you know, for an otter 
coming across a hamburger or something. It's just a bite-sized meal. Um, and so there are many, many different ecological functions, but also on a human level, they control pests, they stop disease outbreaks. These are incredibly re resilient animals which, which have got a variety of ecosystem services. And adding to that, there was actually a campaign by an Australian or, uh, environmental organisation which said, if frogs go extinct, you'll know it. And it was a picture of, of a lady in a bath and then just the whole room covered in flies. And it kind of hits home this message that if we lose these animals, albeit we don't see their effect on a daily basis like you may see an elephant push over a tree, but they affect, the effect is there, but it's at a lower level, closer to the ground. So if you look at Britain... Britain has a, has a very low amount of amphibian and reptiles. It has 13 species. And that's unusual compared to the likes of Denmark and Sweden, which are in the same climatic zone within Northern Europe. They have many more species, especially amphibians, living within, within their country. So what, what, what has gone wrong? Well, we know that habitat destruction has been going on in the UK for practically longer than anywhere else. The Romans started draining the marshes and fens even even in those times. And so if you look into the fossil record and the historical record, we can see that there are extinct species of reptile and amphibian, such as the moor frog, the agile frog, possibly the tree frog, the European pond turtle. And so we need to think, if we want to have these incredible, this incredible plethora of ecosystem services in the UK, we need to think about bringing these species back at large. And I should say, there is concerted effort, effort now uh, to bring back a variety of these species, which is really good, because we should not neglect these animals because people, some people think that they're scary or, or horrid. We've done enough persecution of, of this group of animals for too long. So it might surprise people that we we did have pond turtles. We had turtles in the UK, and is it yeah. is not it's not concrete that we had tree frogs, but it's highly likely. Is well, that right? There's lots of historical evidence, and and the problem is that the real the real no arguing evidence as if we find fossils. But if you go over to continental Europe, tree frog bones only make up two to three percent of all amphibian bones in the sub fossil remains. So it's highly unlikely that we'd find a great many tree frog fossils. That being said, it goes with all the species, there is no concerted effort to actually go out and dig for these animals. You're not going to look, you're not going to find. Exactly. A lot of these digs where we do find amphibian bones are because someone wants to excavate a boring Bronze Age fortification. Uh, <laughs> so, so basically, you're saying fuck time team. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so no, yeah. Farm. <laughs> so what? Um, what would? Well, I'll start with you, Tom. What would be your dream species to, to bring back to the UK? Then? Ooh, well, I know what Harvey's going to say, but I'm I'm going to go with. Oh, it's, it's a tough one. This is putting on the spot now, haven't I? Yeah. Well. I'm gonna, I'll probably have to go with what I think Harvey's going to say, and that's the pond turtle. Mm. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and is that you go pond turtle as I well? I think so. I think it's a, an emblem of, of conservation within Europe, at least. And to bring it back to the UK would be real. I think that would hit home this idea of holistic conservation that people are starting to push this, co this um, corporation, uh, incorporation of the idea of rewilding, but also thinking about 
protecting species in a new way uh, and we were talking earlier about assisted migration because one of the problems which may happen what may happen to the pond turtle is the southern range it may go extinct due to skewed sex ratios from so turtles in general their eggs the sex of the eggs the, the juveniles is determined by temperature and as it gets warmer because of climate change in southern Europe we will get more males than females most likely and so the vast majority of these big populations in the south will go extinct. And some countries, not necessarily with the European pontail, but with other species, especially in Africa, they move megafauna about all the time. They do something called an assisted migration, which is where you reintroduce species to either former or new habitat to make sure that they survive into the future. And so, you know, we may say, oh, well, the pontail went extinct due to natural, natural causes or whatever. But I still think that if we want to conserve animals holistically, we, we should be looking at this way of maybe an assisted migration to the UK. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I mean, I'm a bit biased because I own a European pond turtle. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'd love to think that I am go to my local nature reserve somewhere down the line and there could be some, not some dirty, horrible red-eared slider, <laughs> but a, a beautiful uh, European pond If you've never seen them before as well, I highly recommend you Google photos and they've got these amazing yellow specklings they look fantastic oh absolutely amazing. You know, they're not just some brown muddy looking thing they are they are incredible and, and I, i've said it before no one hates turtles i've yet to meet someone that doesn't like turtles no no they're not um they're not high on the shit list for many people no, are they they, no, are, they aren't they're quite yeah they, yeah it's quite they're quite um oh, what do you call it not a keystone is it a keystone species? You know, like say, like the panda is is a yeah, what an emblem species. Or yeah, something, em, I think so, yeah. something yeah. like that. Well, tur- people can get behind a turtle. Yeah, can't the, they? Yeah. the Turtle Conservancy, who, who are a great organisation all about captive breeding turtles, say their their motto is "Save turtles, save the planet." Mm. And the whole idea is no one hates a turtle, or very few. If you hate a turtle. Go and check yourself in at the clinic because who who, <laughs> <laughs> who, who could hate there is turtle? something wrong with you? you do not like uh, turtles, <laughs> and um, because turtles and tortoises have big habitat requirements, you know they're a grazing species. Um, if you save the turtle and uh, save the turtles and tortoises, you'll also save their habitat and all the other you know thousands of species which yeah. live in that habitat. And yeah. that's what Europe has actually done with the pond turtle, is. Through con- they've proven through conserving the pond turtle, they've also conserved things such as the yellow and fire-bellied toad, which is a priority listed species, the European crested newt, which is a, another priority species and in some parts of Europe now endangered. And so by saving this, the European pond turtle, which needs good terrestrial habitat to forage in, good water habitat, great nesting places, then you're saving such a huge array of ecosystems that many species will love. So one of the things I wanted to ask you both was really, with the UK we seem to have a lot of uh, specialist, I know you don't like the word subspecies, but we have a lot of specialist species, whereas for some reason on the continent they're not nearly as specialist. So uh, my, my first-hand experience of that is sandlers is when I went to Hungary, they were everywhere. They were in meadows, they were in woodland, but in the UK we would typically only associate sand lizards with dune systems or heathlands so do you think there's a reason why many of our herp fauna and and other animals swallowtail butterflies are another example why they're so specialist or is it well i I think it's mainly to do with the fact that 
there's no habitats right. in the UK for these animals, so they have to become specialists because they've got no other option than to, for example, the sand lizard. He's got no other option but to specialize and live in sand dunes because there's nowhere with sufficient water and uh, sandy banks anywhere in the country. There may be few locations, but not enough to support a population. So they just go to the dunes. There is climatic differences, of course, between, say, Hungary and and the UK. But I think the biggest one is association. We've, We've hammered our country environmentally for so long that the only hospitable places, as Tom says, that the sand lizards can now live are these tiny fragments of of what was a once great tapestry of habitat all across the country. Um, As Pete Cooper would say, you can see sand lizards in Bavaria, which I must add is not too dissimilar of a climate to the UK, on beaver dams. And that's because they've got a much more connected, I mean, it isn't perfect, but a much more connected ecosystem, you know, with wildlife corridors and prime wetland where the 80,000 plus beavers that now live in Bavaria are helping create. Um, and, and as I say, the reason why the pond turtle went extinct is probably because we ate it, but also because of habitat loss. I know eating a turtle, I mean... <laughs> it's already in a bowl, really. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to do much, would you? Well, we say that, but, you know, the massive problems that Asia are facing with Chinese medicine... It, traditional medicine and, and things like that um, turtles you know are going extinct all over Asia now so it's not hard to believe that you know in Europe in the medieval times people would also well we know the lizards as well well right? yeah exactly Eye lizards especially yeah, in Spain yeah, yeah. and they still do yeah yeah it's kind of bizarre it's just alien to the UK isn't it yeah. I mean I suppose you think it's strange in France eating frogs legs but yeah. pretty or, much or any... snails or mm. something like this yeah maybe we're a bit sheltered here in the UK but I guess so. I mean, I'd, I'd give it, if it was all proper and humane, I'd give it a go, I suppose. But not, there's, not, there's yeah. not a huge market for it in the UK, really, is there? No. Not, not at, the, at the minute. And I guess what you're both primarily associated with is the outdoor keeping yes. of, yeah, of herptiles. Now, I know particularly this podcast isn't really about pets, but we'll, we'll touch on this a little bit. So for many people in the UK, they might not have even considered that you could keep a, a reptile or an amphibian outdoors and, and think that it would do well but not only do they do well what you two both advocate is that they thrive they in, absolutely uh, yeah. and yeah. do even better so i know we could do a whole podcast just on this but yeah, yeah. just on the bullet points why is it better uh, to keep them outside i should point out this is really only european species or some species that can tolerate northern temperatures a lot of the more tropical stuff would would likely struggle outside wouldn't yeah. they uh, for the most, I mean, it's a very complicated issue. I'm, I'm generalising there, but if you wanted to keep a European species outdoors, uh, what are what are the benefits? Do you want to go from me to you? Yeah. Go on then, because otherwise you'll be talking for half an hour, yeah, Harvey, yeah. And, and Tom will fall asleep. So yeah. let's let's back and forth then. Well, the first one would be natural UV, which is just better than a light bulb or a heating, whatever you call it, bar. Yeah, because it's the real thing. It's the sun. No one can replicate it. Science can't replicate it yet. And the the benefits of UV are that the animal can live as it would in the wild. So it, the natural colours will start to come. Uh, it can metabolise food better. It's just, I mean, it's just, it's simple, really. It's just think. good. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's just, just, that's it's just the, good. Yeah. <laughs> it's just perfect. It's just a real thing. Yeah, because you can't, you can't take something from the wild, stick it in a box inside 
and replicate it when you can just stick it outside you don't have to replicate anything because yeah. it's in the wild just around some walls I guess as well to a degree it's cheaper because you've not got your electricity yeah. on them you so know, I don't know how much you'd save from it but you'd save some money wouldn't yeah you? people often think it's it's quite a big ordeal to keep stuff outside but it, literally it's the same you just need a you can even go bigger with the enclosures because people tend to have more room outside and it's cheaper you don't have to buy these lights and these bulbs and it just makes sense <laughs> I mean it just makes sense well I'll say natural insects um, of course if you're keeping them outside you'll get populations of all sorts of insects in the enclosure of which will help enhance the colour of your animal and provide a diet which it's evolved to eat over millions of years um, so you don't really need to you, you might feed them a do, little bit we do feed them yeah we give them sort of like if you, if you think sort of the carbs we provide and then and then the salad the salad around the around the sides Some is the wood lice yeah. and sour cream or whatever <laughs> yeah okay and um, but but yeah no natural insects are, are great and we provide habitat so maybe a log pile in there some rotting leaves and, and that just brings in the insects as well as planting native wildflowers which bring in butterflies and whatever and the lizards will run after them and then this them. lovely little butterfly gets absolutely <laughs> nailed by the lizard yeah <laughs> so I don't make the rules of it they've got to eat haven't they they've got to eat yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well I touched on this but I'd say a big one is more space I did mention that but you know people often have their reptiles in their bedrooms and uh, from experience you can you know that it just gets crowded and cramped and you don't really want to wake up in a space which smells of reptiles. I don't know if people have had that problem <laughs> no, before. but I, I had a gecko at my uni. I mean, I might have just been a smelly student anyway, <laughs> but my room did funk, and I think yeah. the gecko didn't particularly help. Maybe, probably me as well, but the gecko didn't help. Yeah, um, yeah. And leading on to that, airflow. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you're outdoors, there's a constant jet stream, and what we've learned recently about the coronavirus is you're going to way more likely get infected if there's some form of airflow. And so the enclosures clear out the smell, um, but also they stop the spread of disease, also due to the fact that they're more spaced out, so they're less likely to trans transmit. Um, and on that air, there's been some research showing that pollen in the air lands on different surfaces in the enclosures, and the animals eat the insects which that are covered in the pollen, and that is like a super supplement for the animals, which obviously you can't get in indoors. And as you as you've seen today, Jack, the incredible colours of these animals are just unrivaled, uh, only other by by the real thing in the wild. Um, and that's one thing that I think the whole if we're talking about keeping outdoors, it literally is wild simulation down to a T. And it's and it's also I'll just add another one on. It's just more it's more ethical. <laughs> full it stop. Hard for me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm not after this yeah. one. But, yeah. <laughs> it's just more ethical. Full stop. And we should always be pushing for welfare and pushing for conservation. Um, and outdoor keeping really does tick that box. So you'd argue I don't know if happy is the right word, but you think they're happier outdoors? Or I, I would or, say so. Yeah. yeah, I would say so. Happy's mm, yeah, it's probably not the right way to describe but, it. But, but for they're more comfortable. Yeah, that would be a good word. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. They're not sat there with a grin, but you know, yeah, you know what I mean. They're, they're, it, it's it's they look more at one with the environment yeah. than indoors. 
Well, I mean, I, I can't remember if I've discussed this in a podcast before, but I used to, you know, like both of you when I was, well, I sound like an old man now, when I was your age, <laughs> uh, when I was, uh, I think at 11, when I started keeping reptiles and amphibians, and I leopard geckos and beard dragons and you name old menagerie, but they were all indoors, went to uni, I couldn't take them all with me, and then I largely forgot about it, and then I got in touch with you, both of you, was it a year ago or yeah, a year ago? Yeah, it's not yeah. been long, really. Yeah, I feel like doesn't... I feel like I've known you for years, <laughs> but it's not. It's not been years. Um, and and that maybe you know seeing how you both did it really opened my eyes, and I thought you know what I could probably keep animals again in this way, and to the point now where I've gotten out. You came and built. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. going to say I helped. I didn't help. I started watch, <laughs> but you helped build an outdoor enclosure for me, and yeah, I'll keep. Yeah. I've got five or six different species yeah, now, yeah. and if I do go away for a week or two. I know they're absolutely fine yeah, because yeah. they're getting everything they need. I've exactly. got to, you know, um, someone might chuck a bit of food in, but for the most part, they're happy and they're safe. Yeah. Um, and I love that, and, I, and it's it's a joy keeping them. So it's kind of you've put me in the deep end. Every time I come round here, I always joke, I come home with a new <laughs> animal. You're like, here you go, Jack, take this. I'm like, all right, then you know, got a, something under my arm. So I love it, and I think it's great what you both do. So I'm going to end on this on this last question. Which is what would be your dream species? Any doesn't necessarily have to be European. Could be anything uh, to keep. You had a dream species of, of reptile or amphibian to keep. I'll, I'll give. I'll, well, I'll say what mine I've would got, be first. Yeah. If you two can think of one. Um, I don't know how the practicalities of this would be, but a Komodo dragon would be pretty yeah, good, yeah. wouldn't it? Keep it on maybe like a lead, just outside the front house, and then if anyone uh, sorted you out. But no, yeah, it'd be a dream. But if you had like a huge enclosure and somewhere to keep it, that would be bonkers, wouldn't it? I've seen them at London Zoo and they are just, uh, you know, primordial looking creatures. Mm. So that would be crazy. I don't know, the, the practicality probably would eat my dog, wouldn't it? But um, it would be amazing. But yeah, what, what, what would be your dream dream species, Tom? Oh, yeah. Are you still thinking? I'm still thinking. All right, we'll, if, we'll, if pass to, to I, on, then. we'll pass the ball to Harvey then. I would love to keep Galotia Goliath, which is... Um, and recently, I, I've stolen tongues. <laughs> I just thought of that. Which yeah. is a which is a recently extinct species of Grand Canary giant lizard. I've heard of these. Yeah. Yes. Okay. How big were they then? These were about one meter. 10, really? Twenty. Wow. Huge, massive things. Are they Lacerta? Yeah, they are. Lacerta yeah. day. Yeah. That's a big. Well, so what's that eating? Mice and that, stuff. Or, Rodents. All sorts. Well, mainly vegetarian. Children. <laughs> <laughs> mainly vegetarian. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but they were sort of om- omnivorous with yeah. birds. Eggs so that's whatever. island gigantism, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And that's the a big so for well, Europe. That's it went lizard. extinct recently. Only about when the conquistadors right. discovered the canaries. And um, is that food again? They ate, ate them, or I think a mixture of of the fact that they're ginormous, so they're easy to catch. Yeah, okay. There is a closely related species, which is Galotia stenheini, which which is only like 20 centimetres shorter, so there's still a giant one knocking about, but I think having an extinct species... Yeah. There's actually remains, there's actually remains that have been found maybe with viable DNA, so... Who Who knows? knows? Jurassic. (laughs) 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 Maybe, maybe. Uh, Have you you cooked one? Yeah, I've thought of one. Um, The European chameleon. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, Okay. Which, again, people may not realise that we have chameleons in Europe. Yeah. We do. Well, to be honest, I didn't realise until a year back. And, uh, yeah, just stunning creature. And you can keep them outside in a greenhouse. So you, That would be all right in the yeah. UK in, in a greenhouse? Yeah. yeah, so hopefully we might be able to so get So that's one, I mean, you'd probably future. be too well to get the one you wanted, Harvey, but you might, you might <laughs> yeah, be able to get Yeah, it's definitely something we can 
can look into. I mean, they're rare in captivity. Very rare. Jack saw one at Cotswold Wildlife Park. So I did, yeah. I did see yeah. Wasn't, they're not huge, are they? They're not like the Jackson's how, how comedians. How big was it? Oh, maybe the size of my hand, like the really body. Tiny. Yeah. I mean, it might have been. I don't, I don't actually know how big they get. I don't think they're a big comedian. No, they don't get very big. They're not. They're not. I mean, they're not, in, I mean, they're not like interesting, which is not a nice word. They're, they're more of a, just a green chameleon. But the fact that they could live outside... Yeah. yeah, would be really interesting. Yeah. In One of my friends is from Cyprus, and he sees them in his garden. Oh wow! He oh, gets, awesome. You know, he gets yeah, uh, yeah. occasionally. Like, you'll yeah, get yeah. them, see them nomming on a praying mantis or <laughs> something like that. So they are pretty, pretty cool. Well, it, it, you know, any excuse to talk about reptiles and amphibians? <laughs> yeah, guys it's, is just always, a, it's just always a normal a day in the office for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah you'd, you'd be sat around this table talking about it anyway. If I wasn't here, would you? No, yeah. Um, I would definitely check out. Um, Harvey and Tom's uh, work so it's Celtic well I'll let you do the spiel what, yeah. what, what, if people want to see what you're doing I would go to our website which is CelticReptileAmphibian.co.uk um, and I'd also go to our Instagram uh, which hopefully is in the in, in the description is there a description maybe there is but I'm not going to put any links to your stuff because I don't <laughs> like you that much so you know, I'll, I'll mention you but I'm not going to leave any links um, and uh, our Facebook and our importantly our YouTube where we post weekly videos about the goings on of keeping these incredible animals so stay tuned yeah <laughs> you're very well media trained you'll be saying that a lot over the years I'm sure well look boys thanks for coming on the oh, podcast it's been, a, it's been a pleasure thank you very yeah, much no, thank you. cheers that was Tom Whitehurst and Harvey Tweets to say that they're both only 17 and all that they've accomplished is absolutely incredible. So, yeah, definitely check out uh, their website, their YouTube channel, Instagram, and just see what they're doing. Because so often we get obsessed with, with the big furry things. And maybe we should just give a little bit more thought to the little scaly things. Now, for my top five today, I thought I'd kind of keep in theme with the reptiles and amphibians. And I'm going to do five herps that would be good for you to keep outdoors. So some of these I've previously owned, some of these I haven't, but I'm going to go down a list. So the first one is European pond turtle. Uh, most terrapins, certainly from North America, uh, you can keep outside if you want. In fact, some of them are, are a bit of a problem. But European pond turtles do pretty well in the UK climate. I've got a, a juvenile one which stays outside during the summer just because it's still quite small. I probably could hibernate it out there, but I'd rather not. So it's, it's come inside. Um, for this year but next year it'll be outdoor full time it'll be there in the summer and then when it gets a little bit cooler it'll hibernate in the pond so providing that your garden is secure you could actually keep European pond turtles just in your garden pond but you do have to make sure that they can't dig out anywhere and that they stay there it's better to keep them in an enclosure you don't really want to encourage the release of of any of these creatures but the pond turtles are amazing to look at they've got fantastic patterning on the shell uh, they come out to bass, so you can see them pretty easily. Uh, mine's really tame. It'll come out and feed. I mean, Harvey and Tom were joking because they think I'm overfeeding it a little bit. He's got a little bit of a chunky monkey, my my turtle. But I'll, I'll hand feed it, and it's pretty pretty tame. I'm pretty sure I can teach it to sit and do paw at some point. But definitely recommend European pond turtles. So secondly, European tree frogs. They There is something tropical about tree frogs. They look really, really tropical. But we do get them in Europe. The name's slightly misleading because European tree frog, you think, oh, they live in trees, but they actually prefer kind of scrub and bushes. Brambles is a great tree frog habitat. And uh, as we discussed in the podcast, you know, there is evidence to suggest that they were probably native to the UK, but 
you know, trying to find evidence that is, uh, is, is a little bit tricky, but there's anecdotal evidence anyway that, that we may have had them. But they do survive really well in an outdoor enclosure. Unlike the other ones, I mean, we didn't really go too much into the ins and outs of how you make these enclosures, but normally they, they don't have a lid, or you can put net over if you want. With the tree frogs, you'd have to enclose it completely, otherwise they, they can climb up walls and they get out. Uh, but during the spring, they have an amazing call. The males just do this really loud, uh, high-pitched call. So, And they'll sit out in the sun as well, so you do see them. So they're well worth having. The European tree frogs are a great species uh, to keep. Wall lizards. Now, there are actually populations of wall lizards in the UK, famously in, in, in Dorset, and there's a native population in Jersey. That's the only place where they're native to the UK. Uh, but they do really well outdoors. The thing to remember is they are escape artists, so you need to kind of uh, escape-proof your enclosure because they will get out. Um, otherwise, they're very good at that. But they're... They don't hibernate in the strictest sense, so they're active pretty much all year. If you if you get a warm day in the winter, it's not impossible to see wall lizards out basking. So they do kind of hide away, and they can be a little bit skittish. But over time, of you feeding them, they'll uh, they'll get to know you, and you get some good views of wall lizards. They actually also don't have a specific breeding season, so they'll breed throughout the year. So uh, if you don't want them to kind of proliferate, you need to make sure that you've got uh, just females or, or or just males. But they're a great species to keep. Now, fire salamanders are a species that are widespread throughout the pet trade. And I used to have a, have a salamander as a kid. They are amazing to look at. They're just kind of these dinosaur... Uh, Those remind me of a Ray Harryhausen uh, claymation. If you remember, like, the, the 1933 King Kong, the kind of animals move a bit clumpy. That's how salamanders move. And I think that's what they, they look like. Now, I'll be honest with you, you won't really see the salamander much. If you do keep them outdoors in, in an enclosure, they tend to hide away. You might see them at night if you go out with a torch. So they're not really a pet that you see much, but you can, you know, if you have some logs and stuff, you can lift them up and find salamanders to look at. I always think that reptiles are, typically, they're a passive pet. They're not a pet that you get out that much. Um, some people get them out a lot, but you tend to just leave them to do their thing and enjoy them when you do see them. So the fifth one I'm going to recommend is slow worms. And people are like, oh, hang on a minute, they're a native species, you can't keep them as a pet. Well, the law is actually that you could go out, you could collect a slow worm, and you could keep that as a pet if you wanted to. What you can't do is sell it. You cannot sell a wild-caught British amphibian or reptile. You can sell, however, their offspring. If you bred two wild-caught species, their offspring would then be counted as captive bred. There's all kinds of weird loop, you know weird loopholes uh, around these sort of things. For example, you can keep pool frogs as pets, uh, which are a British native, but then if you drop that pool frog, that's technically then wild, and because it's a protected species, you wouldn't be allowed to pick it up. So there's all these weird uh, hypocritical uh, laws and things against it, but there's nothing to stop you keeping slow worms. I mean, to be fair, you don't really need them in an enclosure. They'll do absolutely fine in your garden, uh, and you might be lucky enough to have slow worms in your garden anyway. And the best thing for them is a nice log pile, maybe some corrugated iron if you want to kind of check up on them, or even a compost heap. Slow worms love compost heaps, and they eat all your slugs and caterpillars and things like that. So slow worms are great to have in your garden. So that's five species that you could potentially keep in your garden in enclosures. There's a whole list that Harvey and Tom have got on the website of other things that are possible. So it's well worth checking that out. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will catch you in the next one, which I've actually, I've just forgot to plug the next podcast, which is Robert E. Fuller. 
So he's a wildlife artist, and we're going to be talking a little bit about his craft. So check that out next Tuesday, Robert E. Fuller, wildlife artist. Anyway, hope you've enjoyed it. Cheers.